0: Had to make sure I'm flipping the right button here. I understand that Pastor Jim stands on the floor here. He has about six inches on me. (laughs) So I'm going to stand right up here if that's all right with you all. These stands are never big enough for everything you have up here with you. Though they'll hide you. I... uh, my first full time position, I ministered with a pastor who was six foot six. And the pulpit was very stationary. And anytime I would stand behind it, I would look like I was. <laughs> with Steve's prayer that the Lord would bless his word this morning, we will jump right into looking at it. We're going to be looking at Psalm 2 this morning. And I am the type to return back again and again to the passage that we are looking at, so you'll want to keep that open there. There was a young boy, we'll call him Johnny or Jimmy. Anytime they're named Johnny, Jimmy, Timmy, you know it's a legend. <laughs> but there was a young boy, and he was um, somewhat forgetful, like myself, and he left the rake outside. After doing some work, he was quite proud of himself. He made a little bit of money from his mom, I guess, uh, for raking some leaves in the backyard. His mom and dad told him over dinner, Jimmy, you left the rake outside. And uh, they, they wanted him to have the full um, experience of a job well done. And they said, you need to go out and take care of it. And he was like, all right, no problem. And they saw that it was getting dark. So they reminded him a couple times, and by the time it had gotten dark, they were like, Jimmy, the rake's still outside. At that point, it was, Mom, it's dark out there. Now that situation had changed. He wasn't too uh, eager to finish the job at this point because it was dark outside. The mom still wanted Jimmy to have the full experience of a job well done. And so she insisted, and his dad insisted, you need to go out and get the rake and put it away. You need to finish the job. And so trying to encourage him, trying to make it easier on him, they informed him that, that Jesus is everywhere at all times. And, and they, they encouraged him that even though it was dark outside, Jesus is out there, and he was going to be just fine. And uh, Jimmy listened to this. And, he, and, he, and he, they could tell the, the wheels were turning. So he decided, okay, I can do this. So he stepped over to the back door, looked out into the dark. I guess they didn't have floodlights. And, um, and he called out into the dark and he said, Jesus, I know that you're out there. I know that you'll be with me. But could you bring me the rake? <laughs> Well there are times and I know that you've probably felt it that, that it seems like our world maybe even America feels kind of dark. It feels kind of like the darkness is, is creeping in and getting darker. The encouragement obviously is that as it gets darker the light only shines brighter. But Psalm 2 is a place that describes situation like this. In fact I um. Before we look at it, I want to share a conversation that I had with a man um, just about two weeks ago, maybe maybe three weeks ago. Uh, I was um, sitting in Tirana, Albania um, on a trip there, and um, we had made a, a day trip into Tirana because one of our team members had needed uh, had some emergency dental work to get done, and the Lord had allowed for us to have um, dinner with a, an elder from the church there in Toronto. And as we were sitting there, this was a man that was, was um, very spiritually mature and had preached in uh, the church there in Toronto. And it was, I was enjoying getting to know him, enjoying our conversation. And he looked at me, conversation kind of changed. And he looked at me and he said, it would seem to me that God's blessing has been removed from America. He says, it would seem to me that America is not the nation that it used to be. And he was looking at me kind of to, to know what I thought about that. And I'll share a little bit later how that conversation went and my response to that. But I know that that's how it feels many times, that America is not the nation that it used to be. What does that mean? Let's read Psalm 2. David writes, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? I'm reading from the NIV here. I think there's a different version up there on the wall, and that's just fine. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. I had a professor that shared of of the the days in his childhood when he was a, a missionary kid in Japan, and uh, as uh, in Japan. There, he woke up one morning and he knew things were different. He heard a rumbling in his house. He, said, he described walking out his front door and, and he, these were his words. He said the sky was black with helicopters. What had happened was that John F. Kennedy had been assassinated. Every military base in the world U.S. military base was on high alert, was ready for attack. These were days when our country was, were in, in tough times. This was the Cold War with the Soviet Union. And it was a tense number of days for sure. But I remember his statement with that. The sky was black with helicopters. This psalm is a coronation psalm. It marks the turmoil of transition. It's written because of moments in David's life, but it's also written to be read when one king has passed away and another king is is being coronated, crowned to take his place. This is why it asks the question, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The assumption during the coronation would be that those nations that were paying tribute to Israel, that this would be a time when they would say, let us throw off their fetters. Let us break their chains. And the the thought would be, now is the time to attack. But you can tell that the, the psalmist here, David, does not trust in a, um, an alternative plan for how to suppress these nations and you know some sort of um, Valkyrie idea of this is how we take control, this is how we keep control. But his trust is in the care of the Lord and the watchful eye of his God. I want to encourage you this morning that God does not look ahead to America's future with a feeling of helplessness, on the national scene. He doesn't look ahead to the future of your home with a feeling of helplessness. Psalm 2 paints a very different picture than this. Psalm 2 paints a picture that encourages us to get our house in order and to plead with our neighbors to kiss the sun, to plead with them, blessed are all who take refuge in our God. First of all, Psalm 2 can help us to look ahead with confidence because of the response of God that we see here in the psalm. It says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. Notice this is the one enthroned in heaven in contrast with those enthroned on earth who would be rebelling or attacking his people. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. He doesn't take them seriously. It makes me think of um, the story of the Tower of Babel where it says they were, the, 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 all the peoples of the earth were joining together to build this tower. And the term there, when it says, and the Lord came down to look and see what they were doing. It's the same image of a person that might stoop down to see, what are these ants doing down here? makes me think of that when it says, he doesn't take them seriously, basically. He proclaims in his wrath, I have installed... My king. David writes the security of God's plan in his position as king, or for the next king, for his son Solomon. But it's often what God is not doing that is hardest to accept, isn't it? It's often when God is not stepping in, when he is not doing what, what you think needs to be done in order for life to return as it was. I can remember um, when we moved to South Dakota, it took 10 months for our home in Marshfield to sell. Um, We were five people in a three-bedroom apartment. And the Lord brought us to a place where we were just laughing about it, where it was just like, you know, when it would come up, we would just kind of, we honestly would get to the place where we'd laugh. The blessing and the amazing thing was, it was the day after I came back from Liberia with our second son from Liberia. The day after that, our house sold in Marshfield. And we realized all the homes that we've been looking at before now would have been way too small. (laughs) Doesn't take long for six of you to be in a three-bedroom apartment to realize the size that's gonna be required. Often our challenge is for us to trust God knowing that he could change our circumstances but feeling like he's doing nothing. This psalm challenges and encourages us to realize that what we need is to change our perspective. To change what it is that we are looking for from this life. Maybe even to realize that one day we will look back on this life and it will just be a blip on the radar compared to the millions of years that we will have in eternity. But throughout scripture, we see that God is always accomplishing his plans in his way. We think of Abram, who was promised to be the father of many nations. In fact, God changes his name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And he must have gotten to the place where he almost thought God was mocking him. Until when Sarah's womb would have been... uh, Unable to bear children, barren with age, he has his son. God shows us through Abraham and Sarah that he has his own timing. What about David's personal experience, the writer of this psalm? We think of Samuel looking past the broad shoulders and the maturity of his brothers. And it says if you can hear God whispering to Samuel, I have my own type of person that I'm looking for. What about Jesus Christ Himself? He came in a manger, in a stable. He was he was testified by shepherds whose testimony would not have even been admissible in court. He lived a life of obscurity when we'd think that he would be gathering followers to himself. He was preaching the cost of discipleship, the cost of following him. He came at a time when Israel needed political salvation but he spoke of a message of carrying a soldier's belongings twice the distance that he expects you to carry them. God's plan of salvation was to turn his back on his beloved son at his moment of his deepest anguish. As if God is saying, I have my own way. Throughout scripture, we see that God is correcting his people's ideas of how he should be doing things. And this psalm is drawing us to realize that the response of God here should encourage us and to look ahead with confidence. So often when a wife brings a problem to her husband, we want to fix it. Here, give me that problem. There. Hand it back to him. Give me something else. And we often want God to deal that way with our situations, don't we? Lord, this is your job. You're supposed to fix this. Well, maybe what we really need is to change what it is that we think God's job is. And it has something to do with His glory and our ultimate good. God's glory and our good. Secondly, I want to share with you that Psalm 2 can help us to look ahead with confidence also, not just because of the response of God, but the response of his godly ones. The response of the godly. We see this in verse 7 and following. The voice of the psalmist turns from being that of God to the person whom God has installed as his king. It says, I will be proclaim the decree of the Lord. This is the king speaking now. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your Father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. He's, he's saying, this is what you said to me, Lord. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. And now he turns his, his voice to the surrounding nations. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Could you imagine having a president who is saying to the Arab Spring that we've seen and is described um, in the news reports and saying, turn to the Lord, will you? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Can you imagine having a president that that's his declaration to the other nations? That's the confidence of King David and the confidence that the godly should have. It ends with a summary statement of blessed are all who take refuge in him. He's not stepping back and saying, okay, let's see the Lord wipe these guys off the map. He's saying, if you want to be blessed... Take refuge in the Lord the way that I am taking refuge in Him right now at this moment. A couple of places that we can find refuge in from this, we learn from this psalm. First, we find refuge in His promises just as King David was. The source of His confidence was His covenant with God. Um, you don't have to turn there, but Second Samuel 7 describes what we call the Davidic covenant. God had promised, he'd made a covenant with David, that he would always have a man from his family sitting on the throne of Israel. And I believe that we will one day see the fulfillment, the eternal fulfillment of that Davidic covenant when Jesus Christ from the, from the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of David, sits again on that throne, that literal throne, One day in a literal reign for eternity. The source of our confidence can also be in the fact that he's also speaking about Christ in this proclamation. Just as the apostles took confidence in this psalm, you can turn with me to Acts 4. Acts 4 verses 24 through 26. A few of the apostles just return after having been physically persecuted and beaten and warned, do not preach in the name of Jesus Christ. And so they return to the rest of the disciples and apostles and they share this story with them. And what do they do? They turn to him in prayer. I want to note that I love the way that I've learned to pray from my relationship with the church in Albania. They pray the way that these people prayed here. All lifting their voices at one time and crying out to the Lord. And that's how they pray here. You see in verse, uh, prior, well here in verse 24, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, you said... You made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. So they turn this psalm back to the Lord. They say, Lord, it's happening right now. The nations of the earth are taking their stand against your anointed one. And that anointed one they're referring to was Jesus Christ, the one whom they served. But you'll notice if you study this prayer later, if you look at it, just a simple reading, you'll see that their prayer was not, so remove this persecution, Lord. Take away what these people are doing, please. No, their prayer filled them with confidence. We are serving the anointed one. We are serving your beloved one. The one whom you have begotten. And we're going to be okay. But let your glory shine forth, Lord. This was their prayer. Have you ever wondered why it is that when you go to the movies, and you see a good action film. How is it that they want to set it up for the final scene? You know, it's usually the damsel in distress is hanging on by her pinky onto a tightrope that the bad guy's about to clip while he blows up the world, and and you know uh, the the hero is in a place where he just has to you know he's probably been bit up beat up for about thirty minutes but somehow gathers up enough strength to fight off an army of ninjas (laughs) and to just kick a weapon at just the right angle to hit just the right button to stop the world from blowing up to save the damsel to kill the bad guy in some horrible way that makes you feel better (laughs) sitting in the theater thinking, good, he got what he deserved. Why is it that that resonates with us? Do you realize that we, as the body of Christ, have the pleasure of sitting amidst the greatest story, the greatest epic battle, the drama that is unfolding that all of the earth longs with their hearts to be a part of, but they can't find it? And all we can do when we walk out of the theater is say, I can't wait until the sequel because we still have a longing for that. We still have a desire to see the hero finally win. The reason why that resonates so much with us is because we are, as I said, in the midst of the greatest drama, the greatest epic battle that is going on. Except we are not the hero. We are the damsel in distress. We are his church. We are his bride. And just as in those epic movies, it's that last moment where the damsel is just at her greatest need. That who is it that gets the most glory? The hero of of the film. And in accepting that role, and accepting the idea that this is about him, this is about his glory, this is about people one day walking out of the theater and saying, wow, what a hero. I just finally saw the final battle. I don't need a sequel. But we are that damsel in distress. And so often during our time on this earth, we struggle with accepting that. We struggle with that idea of waiting for our epic hero To finally win the battle. It's been my experience in my own life and the life of those that I have the opportunity to minister to that the problems in our walk with God most often boil down to this idea of letting go of control. I I so shared the testimony, and I hear that testimony, if I experience that testimony again and again, that it's a surrender of the will. It's a finally loving what He loves rather than asking him to give me what I love. Allowing him to change my heart. Give me new desires. Make me into something new, Lord. I lay myself out before you. What the psalmist recommends to those who strive against God is an ultimate giving up of control, a bowing of the knees. The response of the godly in Psalm 2 also, they find refuge in his promises, but they find refuge in repentance. They find refuge in repentance. Notice that the direction of their confident response, as I mentioned, is to the nations around them. Their response is to to tell them, repent and kiss the son. Kiss this new um, enthroned leader. He doesn't tell them to please stop, but to recognize God's lordship. This is missions. This is evangelism. It sounds harsh. But to warn someone of the wrath of God is important. Uh, Parents, we need, it's okay to make your child hungry for grace. Just as Israel needed to walk through the wilderness with the law hanging over them, our children need to face consequence for when they break the rules. I find myself saying with a broken heart to my children, the problem is that you have a heart that does not want to submit to the Lord. The problem is in your heart. And God has given you a high standard. He's told you to love him with all of his heart. And he must change your heart if you are to follow him. And to leave it at that, it's a statement of fact. But my deep desire is that God would move in their hearts. That they would ask him, Lord, I need to change. You don't need to change to me. The problem is me. And I need to fit and I need you to change that about me. I can't do it on my own. So it's okay to, to proclaim repent lest you fall under God's wrath. Here's the words of Jesus himself. You don't need to, ch- to move here, but I'll just share some from, from John 8, 24. Jesus himself says, If you do not believe that I am the one that I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. From John 3, he says, Whoever believes in him speaking of himself, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Later in John 3, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son, though, will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So what, what is really going on? And, and I could conclude... With this, if I can depart from Psalm two, um, I, I usually don't like to do that. But if I can conclude with looking at this, what is the change that really must happen for someone to move from shaking their fist at God to to kissing the Son? Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with you. Blessed are all those who find refuge in Him. Is the final summary of our Psalm. <clears throat> I've been ministered to uh, over this last, these last six months uh, from a passage of scripture from 2 Corinthians 4 that has answered for me that question as I minister to students and, and, and their parents and as I seek to know what is the change in my own life that makes the difference. Many of you have seen this um, situation. You can look in verse 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians 4 where he says, "...and if, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers." To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. We have often hear the debate, who is it really that makes the decision when someone comes to Christ? And I'm not going to solve that debate this morning. I don't, I don't know if it is solvable. But who is it really? You know, Is it God or is it the person? I can tell you this. The person who does not believe in Christ, they start with a veiled mind that is brought on them by the God of this world, by our enemy, by Satan. And so that is the first challenge is getting past the veiled mind that is described in verse, verse 3 the, um, or verse 4. He's blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. How sad to not be able to see the light of the good news, the good news of salvation, of the glory, the immensity, the brightness, the, the, the beauty of Christ. But to have a veiled mind to that. But yet each one of us have experienced that and know loved ones that are experiencing that. So what is it that turns a person from this position of being veiled to a position of being able to, as the NAS puts it, do homage, bring tribute to the Son, worship the Son, to kiss the Son, as the NIV puts it? Well, look at verse 6. This is a verse that I thank God for and it makes me stop and realize how gracious he is. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. The creator God, the one who created this world, the one who said, let there be light. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That he graciously can shine his light through that veil. Because it's more than knowledge. It's more than being able to pass a test. I'm going to share with you just in, in closing. maybe a kind of a disturbing idea. Okay? If you were to sit in a classroom and, and you're taking a faith test, you're taking a test of belief. Do I pass the test? Do I... Would I be considered a Christian? Not to be considered a Christian, but would I, you know, I guess, would I be considered a Christian? And sitting next to you, however disturbing this might sound, sitting next to you is Satan in his own desk, you know? And uh, so the test says, did God create the world? Yes. You look over. Satan writes, yes. Okay, and he has to, he can't lie, okay? So, um, is Jesus God's son? You mark yes, he marks yes. Did Jesus die on the cross for the sins of the world? You mark yes, he marks yes. Did Jesus rise from the dead? You mark yes, he marks yes. He was there. You know, he, had, he either saw it or he had uh, servants who came and told him it happened. You know, he's not omnipresent. He's not God. Um, is Jesus going to return? and fight a final battle for his bride. You mark yes, he marks yes. You're like, what's going on here? You're obviously not a Christian. The difference between a follower of Christ and Satan is that Satan hates that truth. He knows it's true, but he hates it. A true follower of Christ treasures it, treasures that truth, Loves that truth, treasures the Savior. Why? Because the light has shined, the light, has, let me get this right, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of what? The glory of God in the face of Christ. The radiance, the beauty, the brilliance, the immensity. This is why the brother that shared about his son who says, I, I've never, you know, considered that or felt God moving in my heart or, or, or sensed God, I would say that over this time he's probably moved from a veiled mind to the glory, or not the glory of God, but to being able to see the glory of God, the beauty of that truth. And that is what is required for someone to move from shaking their fist at God to kissing the sun. It's not a fear of that wrath, necessarily. That brings them there, but ultimately it's God making a change in their heart to where they love it, they treasure it, they long to see it. Whether they are the damsel in distress for another hundred years, or whether he does something in their life at this moment. It's for his glory. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for Harvest Fellowship. I thank you, Lord God, for the fellowship that I see here. I thank you, Lord God, that I know that your word is treasured here, that Your desire, the desire here is to lift your name up, to praise you, can sense here that there is a love for you from the heart not out of rote duty but Lord we know that in every body of believers there are those that would mark yes on the test but that truth has not made the 18 inch climb or descent from their mind to their hearts where they love that truth they long to see that truth take, take shape Lord, I pray for those that do not treasure you here. I pray, Lord God, that you would shine the light into their hearts so that they might see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that we can take confidence in your plan, in your glory. We can take confidence in one truth, and that is that you are out for your glory. You can do nothing else. Lord, I thank you for that, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.